Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, February 18th, 2018. The share IDs for Friday, February 16th are the following. For the 7 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 11056, that's 11,056. And for the 10 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 11058, 11,058. This morning, A Vision for You presents Meeting My Old Friend for the First Time. In step one, we found complete despair, powerlessness. We cannot solve the problem of compulsive overeating by ourselves. We've realized that anything that comes from our own resources, our will, our effort, our self-knowledge, our philosophy, our morality, goals, or good intentions won't solve our problem of compulsive overeating. Our human resources alone simply aren't sufficient. They're not effective. In step two, we are given the solution. Our situation is not hopeless. Far from it. There is hope, but that hope lies outside ourselves. As the big book states, we had to find a power by which we could live, and it had to be a power greater than ourselves. But where and how will we define this power? In step two, we begin that search, an undertaking that will lead us through the remainder of the 12 steps. With us today to share about his search for a higher power is Harlan G., a recovered compulsive overeater from Scottsdale, Arizona. Harlan is a loyal servant of Overeaters Anonymous and a beloved member and friend of A Vision for You. Welcome to the line, Harlan. Thank you very much, Leah, and I'm so glad to be here. I'm so honored to be here, and my path here was definitely guided by God, and it's been an arduous journey, but I'm so happy to be here. I am Harlan G. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater in Scottsdale, Arizona, and um, I was born in Chicago, raised in Chicago, educated in Chicago. And uh, on the day that I was born, my mother had no idea that she was pregnant, not a clue that she was pregnant. My mother had profound mental illness. My mother had three distinct personalities. My mother could be a screaming, raving lunatic one minute, and then she could just breathe in air, and somehow, some way, she would just transform into a three-year-old. And from the three-year-old, she could transform just breathe in air, and she could become a pretty normal, educated, well-read person, person that you'd think was totally normal. And then she would breathe in air and become a screaming, raving lunatic again. And you never knew what you were going to get or for how long. My dad was 54 years old on the day that I was born. My dad was the survivor of a massive murder in Europe prior to World War II, this is turn-of-the-century anti-Semitism, which killed his family. And uh, there was a very large family, and he was the sole survivor of that murder and that mayhem. And it marked him, and it scarred him for the rest of his life. And I've had several people tell me, even though he was never really diagnosed with anything, that he definitely was suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. Is that why I'm a compulsive overeater? Absolutely not. 
absolutely not. I am a compulsive overeater because I have an allergy of the body and a twist of the mind. I have an allergy of the body, which makes it impossible for me to stop once I've started, and a twist of the mind that will not allow me any type of respite or comfort when I'm not eating, and it drives me irresistibly into the arms of the food which destroyed my life. And my life has been destroyed. My life has been torn asunder from the moment that I was born by this illness. I am not one of those people who came upon this illness as a teenager or a person in their 20s or 30s. The big book talks about going over the line. I went over the line with a diaper on my bottom and a thumb in my mouth. I am absolutely certain of it because from the time that I was born, from the time that I was a toddler, my weight and my food consumption were topics of hot conversation. I have vivid memories of people screaming and yelling at my mother and father about how fat I was getting and how much I weighed from the time I was a little tiny child. And there have always been two things that scared the daylights out of me. Number one, going to the doctor, and number two, buying clothes. Because every time I went to the doctor, the screaming and the yelling would start. The doctor would start yelling and screaming at my mother. And then after the doctor's visit, uh, we would go for ice cream on the way home. And that was my life as a child, was eating and listening to them yelling and screaming at each other. They showed their love and affection for one another with pots and pans flying through the air. Uh, They would scream and yell things at each other that you wouldn't say to your worst enemy. And that was their life, and that was who they were. And every day, my father would come home, and he would say, I hate your mother. And the only reason I live here is because of you. And my mother would tell me every single day, I hate your father, and the only reason I live here is because of you. And I was five years old watching Yogi Bear and wondering if Yogi and Boo Boo were going to get away with the picnic basket because Ranger Smith was coming around the corner to catch them. And I didn't want to be burdened with the fact that we couldn't pay this bill or we couldn't pay that bill or we had no money or this or that. I didn't want to really be burdened with that, but from a very, very early age on, I became the head of the household, and I became their parent. They needed me to become their parent because they really couldn't parent themselves. They couldn't parent me, and they certainly couldn't live in the world that they were ill-equipped for. And what I didn't realize was I was so inundated with all this information at such a young age that I never had the chance to become a kid. And later in life, that really reared its ugly head on me. But from the, as I said, from the time I was a kid, this disease had me in its grip. And I have vivid memories <clears throat> of going to the doctor as a nine-year-old and being put on diet pills. I have vivid memories of what those diet pills did to me. Those diet pills made the temples of my head sound like a bass drum, ba-boom, 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 and those diet pills worked. But when I crashed down out of them and the diet pills started to lose their effectiveness, I would eat Illinois and most of Wisconsin. When you're on those pills, you sleep about mm, maybe 15, 20 minutes a month. 
Uh, you can't hear people talking to you. You can hear them, but what they're saying just sounds like Charlie Brown's teacher. Wah, 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 wah. And you really can't comprehend what's going on around you because you're like in a world all your own. And it was just terrible. It was horrible. Now, I'm an eater. I'm not a fighter. I'm on the pills. I'm getting in fights at school. And I'm just, I'm not the person that I was. And the pills really changed me. But I lost weight. I lost weight on these pills. And then when I got to be about 10 years old, Kennedy was killed in 63. I was nine. 10, yeah, 10 years old. Uh, then they started coming out with some of the dangers of these amphetamines, and they switched me from a big pink pill to a smaller blue pill, and instead of taking it three times a day, I was taking it four times a day. And the same effect, exactly the same effect. And I have a memory of being in high school, and high school was very hard for me. I had one advantage, and that is I never had to transfer schools. We never moved or anything. One of the things my parents got right was they never really moved me around. So I have friends who I've known from day one of life, and I still have those friends today, which is a treasure in my life, which is a real treasure in my life. And many of them, many of them live here in Arizona, which is why I first moved here as well. But when we were in high school, obviously, we were starting to notice girls. We were actually noticing them in grammar school. But this disease emasculated me. It emasculated me physically. It emasculated me mentally. And I never had the opportunity to look at a girl and have a crush on her and think at any level that I had any shot with her at all whatsoever. I was the fattest kid in the school. I was wearing clothes that were completely out of style. My dad had to go into the old neighborhood in Chicago in Albany Park on the north side, and he would buy me clothes that went out of style during the Great Depression. And I'd have like three, four pairs of pants. They'd all be the same color, same style, same cut, same everything. But if they fit, I had to wear them. I had a size 48-inch waist as a senior in high school. And I remember as a junior in high school, I uh, hurt my ankle. We were playing soccer, in uh, indoor soccer in gym, and I really sprained my ankle really badly. And I went to uh, Edgewater Hospital in Chicago. It's not there anymore, but it was on the north side. And my mom took me on the bus. And we went to Edgewater Hospital, and I got my ankle looked at, and Dr. Bernstein was taping up my ankle, and he looked over the, over the top of his glasses, and he said to my mother, you know, Virginia, he'll never live to see 30. I was 308 pounds at the end of my junior year in high school, and by the time I was a senior in high school, I was 335 pounds with a size 48-inch waist. 335 pounds in high school. Unbelievable. When I think back on it, it's a miracle. I didn't fit in my skin. I didn't fit in my clothes. I didn't fit in the desk. I didn't fit in the world. And my only respite was to eat more food. The only time that that edge was taken off was when I was under the spell of a Kit Kat bar. And a Kit Kat bar or an Oreo cookie could transform me to a place that I so wanted to go. And it was a place of peace, and it was a place of wonderment. And for about nine seconds, the world was a very beautiful place.
But about 10 seconds in, the horror and the remorse and the pall of what I had done to myself was upon me. And I wore it like a cape, a heavy, horrible cape of shame and remorse and guilt and horror and suicidal thoughts. And I didn't know how to live and I didn't know what to do. And around me, the world was crashing in. And I blamed God. I blamed God for everything that happened to me. I blamed God for the fact that I had crazy parents instead of young parents. I blamed God that I had poor parents instead of rich parents. I blamed God that I didn't look like the other boys, and I cursed him. And I was presented a God as a child in school, not in public school, but in Hebrew school. Now, again, I want to be very, very clear here. I am not knocking anyone's religion or anyone's belief. I'm just telling my story. I was presented with a God as a child that spoke only Hebrew. And if I didn't communicate with him in Hebrew, which was very difficult for me, then he couldn't hear me, and I certainly couldn't hear him. And I blamed him. I cursed him, and I was angry at him because he gave me a life that I didn't want to live. I wanted to be someone else. I wanted to be anyone else but me. And my first idea of a higher power wasn't necessarily the God of Israel. My first idea of a higher power, something that I could believe in, was not a deity in the sky, but it was other people. Because I judged my insides with their outsides and I wanted them to take care of me. I wanted them to give me what so seemingly easily they stumbled upon. And I had friends of 